And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Dennis delivers on his own private East End manner. Van Dorn's points lead widens as rivals' hopes implode. Degrassi excavates record equaling 13th Formula E victory for Venturi. Dragon disasters destroy their big chance of big points. And Bird's hand isn't worth two in the bush. All this and more in the Race Formulary Podcast, London Edition. Hello, my name is Jack Nichols, and I'm filling in this week for Andrew van der Berg, who is casually sipping creme de menthe from a very large tumbler in his luxurious French holiday home this week. Uh, well, I mean, it's actually a jeet in the door doing, but he's got medication for that, and we wish him all the best. But still at the, the coal face in a very sustainable manner is Chief Formulary Writer Sam Smith, he was living at large like a sheepskin-coated East End governor in London Docklands last weekend as he resided on the locally moored Sunborn yacht. So, are you still feeling as buoyant after all the action at the at the weekend, Sam? I'm always buoyant, Jack. You know me. Um, yes, it was a <laughs> it was a it was a great weekend of action. I thought uh, the second event at Exile was uh, was was spectacular. I think um, everyone who that I've spoken to since really enjoyed it. The races were great. And um, the only slight negative, of course, is that the title fight seems to be uh, only going one way. But uh, we'll discuss that and other things right now. Yes, we will. What a good idea. But our uh, our special guest this week is a man who had a very big smile on his face for much of last weekend. And that is the team principal of Avalanche Andretti, Roger Griffiths. Roger, it would be rude not to start talking about your weekend because... Two poles, two fastest laps, a win and a second place for Jake Dennis. Oliver Askew got his career best result. So why? And you were successful there last season as well. Were you, were you expecting such a performance coming into the weekend? Well, first off, good morning, everybody. And, and thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, uh, you know, you, when you've had a success at a track in the past, and I, I think certainly in race one last year, we were fairly dominant. Um, you, you know, you always have hopes that you can repeat it but you're never sure until you get there on the day and uh, you know we'd had a good session on the simulator at the early part of the week heading into the race week Jake um, you know was feeling pretty confident you can always tell a little bit with Jake what you're going to get when you see him first thing in the morning or at the start of the weekend and I, I think you know the opportunity to perform in front of the home crowd just found a, a little bit extra, maybe another tenth or two over what he would normally have done. So I, I think we were feeling quite confident. We also knew that this particular track did tend to suit the characteristics of our car. So, you know, we were cautiously optimistic, I should say. It was a, it was a remarkable performance, wasn't it, Sam? I can't really remember a, a doubleheader quite like it. I mean, maybe Sam Bird in New York in, in season three, but in terms of just dominance, obviously Mitch Evans won both races in Rome, but both were from quite far back on the grid. Yeah, he, he was so hooked up. It was almost like he almost carried on from 2021. He, the, the form he showed from the outset, from free practice, which he topped was 
was exceptional. What I found really interesting was that he didn't actually believe pre-event when I spoke to him on, I think the uh, must have been the Friday. He was he was going to achieve anything like he did a year ago. Yet he completely surpassed it and by quite a way. Um, you know, fifty-one points from two races. That's a, that's a rare thing in Formula E. As you say, you have to go back to the first brace of those Templehof races in August twenty twenty. Actually, when De Costa got fifty-eight points to find a better return than that. So he's done that. And I think after a mixed season two for him, um, after what he showed in his rookie campaign, and also one in which a lot of the team there at Avalanche Andretti are, are new to the team and, and have to gel with the existing members of, of that operation. And of, of course, BMW, you know, they do have a footprint at the track, but not in the same manner as it did in 2021. It's, um, yeah, fair play to them for that kind of dominance. I think in terms of why he was so quick, he does have a. He does seem to have a natural, a real affinity with that high grip surface, and and from a vehicle dynamic point of view, I think it's a good car. The the, the BMW is a good car, and and that has I think had a strong input into into how he worked, how he operated, and obviously how Roger and his team delivered such a good package from that point of view. He just controlled Saturday's race and never looked like being headed at all. I I think he was close to two percent up on Van Dorn at one stage, which is, you know, which is unheard of in, in Formula E. It, it, yeah, it was a it wasn't an energy sensitive race, of course, but still it was a, a crushing win. So yeah, fair play to the team and, and to Jake in particular. What what was the difference on Sunday, Roger? Um I think there was a couple of factors. I mean, the track grip had changed over the course of the weekend. Um, although we'd had a little bit of rain overnight on Saturday, there was a lot more grip. Um, obviously, everybody had had an opportunity to to work through the setup from the night before and just see if there's any improvements that could be made. But ironically, the the one mistake that Jake made all weekend was probably the deciding factor between winning and coming second. And uh, I don't know if it was picked up, but he inadvertently went through the attack loop while leading, while still having eight seconds of attack time left. And uh, that just threw away 1.3 seconds to Lucas and uh, our strategy to get out in front of Lucas on the next lap really changed at that point. So Jake still doesn't know why he did it. Um, I think he was so focused, he just went through it. And coming out the other side, it was like, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> so, you know, everybody's human. Everybody makes mistakes. But I, I, I think that was probably why we didn't have the perfect weekend. But, you know, Lucas was super fast. Um, I think Jake was struggling a little bit with the rear tyres at the end. And, and the track, and I don't think people really appreciate it, is, is super physical in terms of what the drivers are going through. Um, 22 turns in a mile and a half. You know, a number of those turns are very, you know, require a lot of wheel movement, you know, almost sort of full lock on the steering. And, you know, the new chicane that they put in was very quick and needed very quick hands. So I think by the time we got to the end of the race, you know, Jake was very tired and I think many other drivers were very tired. So, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, like I said on the broadcast, you know, when you're disappointed to finish second, you've had a really good weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we kind of, on the broadcast, we kind of missed Jake's error because I remember half seeing it and I was like, oh, Dennis and Degrassi take attack mode at the same time. And then I realized that Dennis still had five seconds left. So I thought I must have invented 
that he went through attack mode or something like that, or you know, misseen it or something. It was it was quite a yeah, it was quite it, an odd one. It, it was yeah, it was you know, we told him going into you know turn you know down that sort of back straight to approaching turn sixteen. We said, oh, you know, eight seconds of attack remaining, or, or ten seconds or whatever the number yeah. was, and and I don't know whether that just sort of his brain went oh got to take attack now yeah yeah <laughs> anyhow but he had he had i noticed after the race talking about the physicality he uh, you could kind of see it on on the podium had quite a lot of sort of black strapping on his on his wrists and stuff yeah i mean both he and oliver had been struggling through the weekend with you know the weight of the steering um and you know over the as i say a lot of laps a lot of corners i mean i, I don't i've never gone back and worked it out but I would imagine that 37 laps and 22 corners a lap, that's probably more than we've done in yeah. most places. So I think it, it's, it was a demanding track and, you know, just the way the surface gripped up so much. And, you know, seeing one or two other drivers after the event, you know, they were talking about barely being able to turn the wheel. So I don't think we were the only ones. Just just adding into that in, in terms of the physicality of that race, um, De Costa damaged his steering just by smashing the curbs and was really struggling yeah. with his steering at the end of that race. And also Nick De Vries broke a, broke a damper in terms of the, you know, just bashing the curb so consistently. So that gives you an idea of how how physical it was, not just on the drivers, but the cars too. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, you, to get the quick lap time, you do have to take quite a lot of curb in a, a number of places. And as we say, if we go back to the, the number of times that, you know the car suspension and steering are seeing those high loads um you know it's not not surprising that there were some failures sam mentioned it a little bit earlier on that uh you know you've not exactly had to rebuild the team but after the the you know bmw leaving it's been you're, you're much more of a uh, an independent team now right and so did this feel like your first win in formula e as a independent Almost because you, your first win was one when BMW joined at the at the start of season five. So there must have been a lot of personal satisfaction based on what you've built at Andretti. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as you say, we did take on quite a few new members of staff um, across all aspects of the team, not just on the engineering side, but you know, in the BMW era, they were also covering all of the client services, PR marketing, and all of those sort of non-engineering or operational aspects. So, you know, we brought in a lot of new people and it always takes a little bit of time to gel. Um, and we're also doing a lot of things on our own as we prepare for, you know, the, ultimately the separation from BMW in just two weeks' time. So there's been a lot of activity going on. Um, and you saw earlier in the season, we, we've had our struggles um, not really because we've made genuine mistakes. It's just been a case of not everything has been in in place when we've needed to be there. And we've chipped away at it. And we always knew that the core of the team was strong, you know, that the ability to operate cars, to build cars was, was always there. It, we just needed it all to come together. And I think what we've seen, you know, recently we've, got back consistently in the points, you know, from Jakarta, Marrakesh, New York, etc. Um, after a pretty, you know, droughtish type um, 
aspect to the season it, it, it's, it's really feeling quite good and hopefully we can carry that through to to Seoul in, in just two weeks time so the the win on Sunday Sam went to Lucas Degrassi his his first win since last season and his best race in a long well he's always been coming through the order this year he's always been most of the races finishing higher than he starts but he's just tended to not start very high and he's been on superb qualifying form in the last four races I think he was uh what was he third on the grid four races ago then he topped the group qualifyings for the last for the next two races but was disqualified in both of them then finally starts on the front row and and takes the win so this has been threatening to come for Degrassi all year yeah, I think so. I think obviously those improvements have come with this new package he's driving. He's he's had you know, he's consistently been an Audi driver and understanding the how Audi functioned for for seven seasons and comes into essentially an independent team with a with a manufacturer partner. You know, I mean, Degrassi himself is just a great one for reacting to some extra emotional charge as well as the electrical variety, isn't he? He was absolutely fuming after having his lap times cancelled for impeding Fryens and Evans on Saturday. When I saw him doing all the theatrics in the engineering room, slamming the door, <laughs> gesticulating, I thought, hello, this race is going to be a lot of fun for him, but probably not for those in front of him. I mean, it, it, so it proved he was excellent, came through, got a couple of points for ninth. And, and overnight, he and his engineer, Cyril Blay, changed a few things, and, and that just sort of honed what they had in that Saturday race. There, there was also some residual anger, I think, from, from Lucas. And he, he just got into that zone. And when he does that, and when his aggression is measured, he's still very potent, um, very potent proposition. He drove a cracking race, slightly outfoxed um, Dennis and Andretti, got a bit of a leg up with the the issue that, that Roger revealed um, just there in terms of the attack zone. And and he, he won a, a great race. He's 13th. He equals Buemi's, um, Buemi's record. The two of them are now at the head of the, the stats in, in respect of wins. So, I mean, I think the, the other thing to say about Venturi last weekend was from Mortara's perspective, it must have just added another layer of misery onto his rotten weekend. You know, whereas one Venturi was right up there challenging at the front, um, Edo wasn't. And his title credentials just sort of evaporated further after a pretty coruscate in New York a couple of weeks ago. He made a bad start on Saturday, hit Fryens, got involved with the bird, the cost of melee, damaged his car, got a nose change, they didn't put the nose on properly. Uh, you know, he did, well, it was it was coming loose. You know, that isn't where you want to be in a title fight, is it, with, with three, four races remaining. And on Sunday, he just didn't have any pace at all, left his attacks late, but never capitalised, barged into Gunter, got a penalty, spun away his chance at turn one with that move on bird. I mean, to be fair to him, he was really honest after the race when I spoke to him, but he didn't really have conclusive answers as to why he couldn't replicate what, what Degrassi's had in terms of pace. It's got to be tough for him to look back at his July. I mean, you look at that month, and on the 2nd of July, he was 11 points ahead in the title fight, the top of the table. 28 days later, he's 41 points behind. I mean, <laughs> that's fairly remarkable stuff, isn't it? That's a big trough to head into. It's sobering stuff for him, and I think the team, to have to take that they have to take shared responsibility for that at the break by wire issue in New York. And um, it's just, it's just gone away from him. And um, he was, he was kind of stunned actually when I spoke to him, he was trying to weigh it up and understand how that swing had gone from Marrakesh to, uh, you know, four weeks later to, to, to essentially his title, his title hopes evaporating. He scored 90 points from in the four races, two in Berlin, Jakarta and Marrakesh, those four races, he scored 90 points. Mm. The last four races, he scored five. 
It's it's absurd. It is, and it's just when you look at Van Dorn and to a slightly lesser extent Evans and and, and how they've built their title campaign. And there was a moment in that race, um, I can't remember which incident it was, but Evans, it may have been when Bird and Acosta and, and Edo had that schmozzle and and, um, and Evans sort of came through. And Evans was completely aware of what was going in and around him and placed his car and made it around that, that incident. And uh, that awareness, and look, you know, I know a lot of it's chance and a lot of it's circumstance. Edo wouldn't have been in that position if he hadn't made a bad start. So ultimately... He's got to take responsibility to a great extent for for everything that to, to a lot of the things that unfolded there and, and wrecked his race. But Evans and Van Dorn, you know, I can't remember the only incident I can re- really remember Van Dorn being involved in this year was when he got clobbered by Degrassi in in Mexico, which cost him. Which incidentally was the last time that Van Dorn didn't score, put mm. points on the board. The only time exactly, this season, yeah, and that's exactly how. You you know you you get the momentum and you build your title campaign, especially this year when it's been a more hierarchical uh, structure with the new qualifying format. So um, ultimately, Mortara and Vern, who we're going to come on to, that that's what they're going to look at, and um, and and that's why they're not going to be in the in in a real title fight. Come Sol, Roger, is Formula E? Do we do? You, have you experienced this in every? motorsport series you've been involved in where where you just get into this sort of mortara like run and you just can't pick up points for 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 love nor money or is it quite formula e specific how quickly things can kind of just disappear you know i mean i think of the start of your season five where you win with uh with antonio in in diria and then you're running one two in marrakesh then there's the collision and then sort of nothing ever really came back for the next few races? Like, is that quite Formula E specific or is that just a motorsport general thing? I think generally it, it, it's motorsport, um, not specifically Formula E. I, I mean, you know, I know for us, when we had that collision in Marrakesh, it kind of knocks the wind out of your sails. Even if you're, you feel like you've dealt with the issue of, of driver communication and things like that and, and got that out the way. So there's no sort of carryover animosity. It, the rest of the team and, and I'm sure the drivers are still reeling from the mistake. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought at the time or, or maybe, you know, six months afterwards that had we got that one, two in Marrakesh, then the season probably would have been very different and we'd have been in with a title fight. But when, when something like that happens and, you know, whether it's as a team or as an individual driver, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's just fate or whatever, but it, it, it certainly can turn your, your season upside down. And, you know, sometimes you can't answer why that is. You know, you haven't really done anything different in your own preparations. You haven't really done anything different with the way you've set the car up or worked with your engineer. It, it just seems to, whether it's the confidence that goes and, and then you, you just try that, you know, 2% extra harder and, and, and it just it just all goes away from you. Yeah, so frustrating. Um, how are you viewing the the title fight? Van Dorn, 36 points ahead of Evans, going into Seoul where there's uh, 58 available. I mean, w- w- how difficult does it to go into a scenario like that, trying to treat it like every other race when you've got such a big opportunity to to win the title? You know, if I, if I was in, I'd just be telling Stoffel, just do what you've been doing, you know, don't take any unnecessary risks. I mean, it, it was a classic for us this weekend. I mean, 
when I was talking to Jake before the race and, and even in the pre-event, uh, pre-race meetings, I said, don't worry about Stoffel. He's not going to do anything rash. He's got he's playing the long game. He's got a title um, battle in his mind and he's, he's not going to try go down the inside uh, at turn one. I said, you're, you're fine. But with um, Lucas the following day, I said, he's got nothing to lose. So you better be awake when those lights go out <laughs> and you've got to get off the line as quickly as possible. And he's going to harass you all the way. And, uh, you know, that's very true. I mean, I think Sam said it just a minute or two ago when, you know, if you look at the point scoring that Stoffel's had, I think he's only had one non-finish. He's only had one race win versus Mitch's three, but Mitch has had a lot of, you know, races where he scored no points, had DNFs. So, yeah, my money's on Stoffel just to be consistent and, you know, easily bring it home. Uh, Sam, your your thoughts on that? Because, I mean, for me, I think Van Dorn's cooked. Uh, sorry, Vern. Vern. Vern's, Vern's out of it. Evans is five points clear of Mortara. So if you think Evans is in with a shot, surely you have to think Mortara's in with a shot. But it's going to take some kind of catastrophe for Van Dorn and one that hasn't befell him so far this season in, in any way, apart from like that little spin in Mexico. Yeah, exactly. You know, he can afford to play the margins. But as, as Roger said, you know, you start to overthink it and you start to you start to drive conservatively or change your approach, that's when you get into trouble. And if he does that on the Saturday and Evans wins, and don't forget Evans is entirely capable of of, um, of doing doubles, we saw it in Rome, then all of a sudden the pressure's really back on Van Dorn. And this championship in particular, but actually motor racing generally, is all about momentum and it's all about the confidence been up and been in control and you know not leaving anything on the table. I mean, Stoffel theoretically can leave lots on the table, but he has to find that balance between not deviating from the path that he's been on this season and actually ensuring that he gets the points necessary to to take the title. You know, he only has to you know has to get a certain I haven't done the math yet, but he only has to get a certain amount of points to to make sure that he um he wraps it up. And I think, you know, if you if you're doing odds, you get really long odds on um on, on Mitch been in the mix and, and been able to to apply that pressure to successfully and I, I you know Mortara and uh, Vern are both mathematically still possible I mean, Vern is so you know needs a miracle and a miracle wrapped up in a bigger miracle to to try and do the impossible which is you know it's just not going to happen is it I think Mortara has a very very little chance I only really see it as a two two-way title fight and even that is 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 slightly on the you know slightly on the uh, the thin side now but who knows you know we've seen some extraordinary finales haven't we I think the first three seasons were were, were absolutely mighty and we're, we're due one aren't we I mean you know last year yes there was the the, the 13 or whatever that were going to Berlin it was a bit of an anomaly season let's say then we had the pandemic affected season Vern kind of won it at pretty much a canter in in season four um so last year was like monaco 82 <laughs> it was wasn't it no, we just we just needed <laughs> just a, sitting around waiting for someone to win the championship well, we, just, we just needed a wingless Derek daly to turn up didn't we and try and win it <laughs> on the last lap or whatever but no it was uh, it was 
yeah, I mean, I think you can get away with one season like that, but it was clear that we couldn't carry on in that manner. Um, but would you, would you, would you a crack in? Would you, would you something extraordinary happening? I feel, and I just feel that yeah. maybe on that Saturday, Van Don has had such a run. It, it has something has to happen. Something's got to, got to, got to put a spanner in the works. And um, you know, I hope Ian James isn't listening to this because you know might put the heebie-jeebies up him. But I think um, I think he listens. I don't know. I think one other thing that we got to factor in is that come Sunday, this is the very last race of the Gen 2 car. And uh, I think it could be a bit of no holes barred racing there. Well, so you don't have to repair them. <laughs> yeah, well, if it, if, if it rivals the, um, the full bins that I saw in <laughs> New York, it'll be doing well. But uh, yeah, it's a good point, Roger. I mean, it's a quick track as well. So... Um, you know the the Jaguar has um, has proved that that on quick tracks it's it's got a nice package. So uh, I just hope I hope it's carried over to the Sunday in some form or fashion, and we've still got a, a title fight to enjoy on the on the final day of the season. And and as Roger says, as Roger says, Gen Two as well. Well, the one of the things that sort of stretched that title or, or, or minimised that title fight was Mitch Evans retiring he was running i think in fourth position and that kind of swung it by another 12 points so in, i think it was set to be 22 points and then it became 36 um or 24 to 36 i think it was and it was quite surprising roger to me to see a formula e car just break down okay antonio giovinazzi's retired in almost every race this season but apart from that no one seems to just break down in in formula e these days were you were you surprised to see that Yes and no. I mean, we are getting towards the end of the season and, and the miles are starting to accumulate on a number of these parts. Um, you know, I'm sure Jaguar has a strategy to try and ensure that no one powertrain that's being provided to, to either of their drivers is out of whack with the other one in terms of the number of races it's done. Um, but it's, you know, this is the point in a championship where you have to where you just have a minimal number of parts to to use during the course of the year, that reliability starts to be a worry. You know, you start looking at the things and all the parts and, and thinking what is our best strategy towards getting a good result, um, you know, performance aside, but from ensuring that you're still running at the end. And, you know, some of these are electrical components and, you know, the inverter in particular is, you know, whilst there's no real moving parts like uh, the motor or the gearbox, it's under an awful lot of stress. And, uh, you know, everybody's maximizing how they use the inverter, the amount of current that's going through it, the switching speeds inside the inverter. So it, it's being stressed, but just not in a manner that it's easy for the sort of the layman to comprehend. So it, it yeah, it could happen to any of us, and it, it certainly happened to us last year in Berlin when we had a very similar problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, interesting stuff for, for Evans. We'll keep an eye on that over the, the final couple of races in, in Seoul. We'll, we'll just finish off about the sort of London track and the and the London event. The, 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 the double hairpins were replaced by those quick chicanes. You mentioned them before, Roger, that they were, that they were quite quick. Did it, did, it, did, it, did it make too much of a difference, in, in your opinion, to how the track kind of raced and how it worked because there was a lot of fearing there was a lot of fears that overtaking would be impossible and whilst it was difficult it didn't seem to be a million percent worse without those chicanes to me i mean from my perspective i, I think it actually allowed us to have a cleaner race mm. because we had any number of incidents uh at those two double hairpins last year which 
you know, affected the outcome in one way, shape or form. But we, we really didn't have much of an incident at, at turn 10 and 11 with a new configuration. Um, certainly, you know, with the FIA change to the energy allowance, it made the racing a little bit tighter, a little bit more energy sensitive. But I think they could go another step again. And uh, we might not see quite so many desperate moves for passing, particularly into turn one that we saw um, as on Sunday. Yeah, uh, Sam, what did you what did you make of the track? And also, just the the whole atmosphere. I thought was really it was the first Formula E event really in London since 2017 at the end of season two, which was a very you know Formula E was in a very different place. I was, and maybe as the <laughs> Maybe as someone who is literally employed by Formula E, I, was, I shouldn't be saying this, but I was really pleasantly surprised by how many people turned up and what the atmosphere was like and how knowledgeable all the, all the people that came were about the, the series. I, I was really quite um, a little bit blown away by it, honestly, even though it was exactly the same event, but just having fans changed the whole vibe. Yeah, I thought it was one of, if not the best event I've seen from Formula E in terms of really? them putting it on. I really did. I thought I thought the venue looked amazing. Yeah, it's a bit of an acquired Stop taste. Stop the press. Sam <laughs> Smith's being positive about Formula E. What's going on? No, I just I just thought it, you know, that the, the, the track had, had changed slightly. It's it's an acquired taste, the track, you know, the inside and outside. But I, I actually really enjoy it. I think the uniqueness of the inside outside is great. I think I agree with Roger in terms of the chicane, so nothing really to, to add on that. But I just thought that the whole event, it felt like an event. It felt like an, a festival. It looked the business. Formery was everywhere in and around the venue, and that's the way it should be. You know, my, my family came to it, actually, and believe me, my wife has absolutely zero interest in racing at all, and <laughs> she really enjoyed it. So that's kind of the litmus test, as did my daughter, who had loads to see and do and just got really engaged and, and had a great weekend. I actually spoke to De Costa on this today, earlier today, um, and he said that, you know, he regularly speaks to to some of the the, the execs at Formula E, particularly Jamie Regal, the, the CEO, and and his team to 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 really give informal advice on some of the events. And you know, he just said little things about you know the autograph sessions and what works and what doesn't feel right. I found that really interesting because De Costa's one of those drivers who's clearly invested in Formula E. You know, without Formula E, what would what would Antonio Felix De Costa be doing? I'm sure he'd have a really successful potentially IndyCar career or, or WEC or whatever. But actually, from a single-seater context, you know, he, yes, he gets well-paid, etc. but he genuinely wants to grow it and he's invested in the championship. The big question for me, though, was with all that good stuff, and it really was good stuff and it was a great event, and, I, you know, I could go on and on and on, but that, that would spoil my reputation, which you just mentioned, there, Jack, <laughs> so, so I'll stop. Um, the, the fact remains that outside of it, outside of the event last weekend, you know, Really, we don't know at the moment, but how many people were really watching on TV or engaging? You know, I hope I'm wrong, but when there's a Grand Prix at the same time on the same weekend, that's that's troublesome, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, quite why we were racing at the same time as F1 was qualifying and racing. I'm not quite sure. Surely an, an earlier slot or later in the day slot could have been achieved. You know, I don't want to get into this whole debate with f1 and and formerly and we haven't seen the data yet and you know i hope i'm wrong but you know um i, I think that that has to be looked at there are a few little other other things you know n none of the public none of the spectators that were there i heard that there was close to forty thousand people there over the weekend you know they they weren't there wasn't there was no invitation to go down to the 
um, to the podium, for instance, which, you know, they put on this great big podium show and it's fantastic. It's really spectacular. They do a great job. But, you know, unless you sat opposite the, the pitch, you can't really see it, you know. And we've seen how fantastic the podiums are in Monza and, and other circuits. And yes, you know, it might be a practical reason. I'm sure there is a reason because I think Formula E wouldn't, you know, wouldn't shoot themselves in the foot like that. But, you know, they're, they're peripheral things on the whole. I thought it was a great event, exactly what Formula E should be. And interestingly, I think this model of racing in and around Stadia, using perimeter roads and and going away from that city centre model, which is fantastic, but is such a nightmare to put on, so disruptive for cities, so politically you know, spiky in some respects, Montreal, we've seen what's happened in Vancouver, but, you know, Formula E needed this event, Formula Formula E needed this event to be a big success, because the calendar still is troublesome, and I think, and I think it, it, it was, it was just a really, really, really good job. Yeah, I think the highlight for me was just hearing the crowd cheering in qualifying. Yeah, you can never hear that anywhere else. And, you know, combination of having them there inside with you not too far away, the fact that the cars are not as loud as some other forms of motorsport, but just the noise from the crowd was really exciting. Yeah, it, it was fantastic. Um, I, I spoke to it because I think that's an interesting point, Sam, about the the stadia thing, because the the whole well, one of the big purposes of the racing in the city centres is to bring the racing to the people. Right. But these huge sports stadiums almost by default have that transport infrastructure, you know, public transport infrastructure around them. Anyway, I, sp- I met a man who always uh, gets involved in our in our BBC Formula One uh, conversations. And I met him and he was like, this is the first motor race I've ever been to because it's the first one that I've just been able to get to pretty easily on public transport, you know? And, and I met a lot of people for whom this was their first motor racing event. So that was pretty cool. Um, I also met your wife and daughter when you had abandoned them and they'd been waiting for you for 15 minutes. <laughs> And they were like, have you seen Sam? I was like, no, I haven't. Oh, he was meant to be meeting us here 15 minutes ago. So that was a bit, that's a black mark on your, on your copybook, Sam. But no, it, overall, it was a, it was a really, really uh, tremendous event, I have to say. Uh, we'll, we'll have a look now at some of the other stories that came out of the weekend. Plenty of needle in London to go along with some, some great racing. Now, I'll be honest, Sam, I don't know if you've, if you've written about this. I haven't read it, so I don't know what you're talking about with this question but Mercedes attempted some choreography on Sunday. What was what was going on? Yes, they did. And you've obviously ignored some of my editorial once again, Nicole. So thanks for that. Uh, no, yeah, yeah I haven't story. read it. <laughs> did I see it? Did I, mean, I probably mentioned it during the race and I've just forgotten. Okay, so what happened was uh, in the closing stage of the race, when Mitch Evans retired... Oh, elevated, yeah, but they, cause, well, yeah, but they're going to swap De Vries and Van Dorn then? Was exactly, that the plan? yeah. Yeah, Van Dorn got into fourth position, was behind his teammate Nick De Vries. Um, this, of course, opened up the possibility for some choreography in order for Van Dorn to get an extra three points and make it 39, I would have believed, if, he'd have, if yeah. they'd have done that. The call was made. It was made via Ian James to De Vries' engineer, Albert Lau, um, that request was put forward to Nick. Um, problem was that De Vries was seven seconds up the road in the final mm. laps, and we were in extra time here, remember. So Van Dorn also had uh, De Costa's DS a few seconds off his tail. So it wasn't ideal for achieving this kind of switcheroo situation. Um, De Vries was also struggling with uh, that suspected 
well, it was a broken damper that I mentioned before when he, he he smashed the curbs and it was affecting his handling, but he still had that sort of gap that he could reasonably manage. Uh, you know, looking at this now, I think personally it was, I think it was a mistake to attempt something like this. I think it was a very difficult thing to to achieve. Ian James often talks about the jeopardy in precisely these situations, which he forecast would happen, and they often happen when there is a title fight for grabs. I mean, how many seats, how many times have we seen Diaz to Cheetah come a cropper with exactly this situation? On the other hand, what if Van Dorn loses the title by three points or less in Seoul in a couple of weeks' time? It, it's unlikely, as we've already discussed, but, you know, stranger things have happened. He alluded to this in a sort of tongue-in-cheek moment after the race when I was chatting to him, but... Mercedes won't even want to consider that, will they? I mean, 36 points should be more than enough. I, I, I just thought De Vries was... I thought he was right not to um, not to follow that order. Now, that's a whole different discussion about team orders, but ultimately, the driver does have to have an opinion if the conditions, the context, are as, as they were with those gaps and, and how difficult it is to, to, to choreograph that um, and to get those circumstances right. Neither of those drivers, remember, are going to be driving for that team when it morphs into McLaren next season as well, which is, you know, an, a, an altogether different strand thrown there. But, you know, I've personally never seen any needle between De Vries and Van Dorn. In fact, quite the opposite. I believe they get on very well, extremely professional uh, competitors. But, you know, I think De Vries will be much more use to Stoffel in Seoul, potentially, if he's needed to be. So I think it was... Yeah, it was it was, a, it was a little bit embarrassing, I guess, and I'm sure it was. Uh, there were there were some some exchanges in the debrief afterwards, but you know, I don't I don't see this being a massive flare up that, that can affect any of the uh, ambiance, let's say, in the team heading to Seoul. Would you have made a, a similar call, Roger? Uh, no, I think I probably would have left them where they are. I mean, had the two guys been running line astern, then it's an easy decision to make and to to move them around, and you know, it's something that we talk about every weekend you know if we're going to do a swap where we're going to do it when we're going to do it how we're going to do it Um, and that really came out of the marrakesh thing but you know to be that far back and you know nick would almost have to park the car for stoffel to be able to catch up Um, and then you know he exposes himself in in trying to get out the way and let stoffel through um you know does da costa come with him as well and then suddenly you you've just thrown away a you know, podium and, and all sorts of other things. So, uh, you know, I get what Mercedes were trying to do, but I think the risk versus the reward in this particular case wasn't worth it. And, um, I, you know, you have to listen to the driver because he's the guy there at the moment and uh, he knows what he's dealing with and what's he going to have to do to, to slow down that much. And I, I think, you know... Nick was right in doing what he did. Now, I'm not not saying that I would be particularly happy if Jake and Oliver. Did yeah, you're like the boss, that. Roger. Um, no, I, I I think it ultimately what Nick did was correct. Um, you know, unfortunately, it all gets played out in public in those situations. Yeah, interesting. Um, so that was also they've they've got the, the the teams championship to look out for, haven't they? So if you risk losing a couple of points to to DS in that fight because that's I mean it's not closer but it's what are they 40 30 36 points behind something like that and some very yeah, yeah. loose maths there but um yeah so that's that's the sort of danger for for Mercedes EQ if they start 
messing around with that. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub an official partner of The Athletic. Some other teams. Diaz de Cheetah were... were I went up to um, James Rossiter, uh, the, what is he, sporting director, I think, after free practice two on Saturday morning. And I said, um, do you just have no pace? And he said, yep. And that was that was the extent of the conversation, Sam. And then, and then it never got any better. No, I mean, you know, one of the one of the sights was James with his head in his hands uh, after qualifying, wasn't it? On Saturday, it was it was a desperate weekend. I think, I think from Vern's perspective, who obviously was in the title fight, um, needed to bounce back quickly from New York. He he just didn't seem to turn up at New York, and uh, you know that was extended to to London. Yes, he had some bad luck. Of course, he did. I think it was just another nightmare weekend. And although he can still mathematically take the title, you know, as we said before, it's, it's just not going to happen. He's He is in all but maths out of it. He struggled with massive understeer all weekend. I had a chat with him um, after Sunday and he was just never comfortable with the car. And, and then he got clobbered by Roland on the opening lap after, after Askew's... Um, the Askew triggered uh, melee there, and then it was an early bath. Ironically, De Costa, the other side of the garage, had a lot of oversteer and, and struggled in that perspective, and also had that that steering issue um, where it was, as it, at the very least, was was knocked out of line on the curbs, and, and maybe something was broken in the, the steering column or or um, or whatever. But but it was just that rare thing from DS, wasn't it? A messy weekend where they were kind of also runs, which we just don't see from those guys. Their, their chances of a third team's title are all but over now. Um, but the feeling is that, that Merck's, anyway, the Mercedes over a season w- would have have the superior package. And ultimately, it looks as though that's come to pass. I think I think actually Vern, his consistency has, has maybe put him in a slightly false position anyway. But you know he's not helped himself with these with these off days and and and, and these non scores. There is um, you know looking forward to DS. There's a lot of sorting out to do with this um, this mooted or the, what we believe will be a, an alliance with Dragon Penske um, heading into Gen Three. Um, I think that's going to keep uh, me busy in the coming months trying to sort out how that's all going to work from 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 every kind of perspective. But yeah, I, you know, it, interesting, isn't it? You know, Gen, when you look back at Gen Two as a whole, um, it looks as though it's going to be 
two all. It's going to be two two titles for for DS and two titles for um, for for Mercedes. So probably about right, I would think, over the duration of of uh, of Gen Two. Even though the first season, of course, for Mercedes was with HWA. But um, yeah, it, it's just it's just been there's just been too many errors, too many mistakes, and you know, from from a title campaign, you just can't afford some of those days that the DS to Chiefs have had. No, exactly. John Eric Verne scoring points in every race so far this season until New York, and then he's not scored any points in the in the last four. Similar similar story really with with him and Mortara fairly cataclysmically falling out of of the championship fight. Um, a few quick ones then. Uh, Dragon, you mentioned Penske and the future and DS and whatever, but this weekend they had they had some great pace, but they just they they can't. They can't score points in the in the race. And Roger, Sergio said a camera told Sam last weekend that the sort of errors they make and the and the issues that they that they have are are a legacy of the team being out of place now that the championship has grown so much in terms of of budgets and manufacturers. Do you do you think that's sort of true in the in the sort of in the way that Dragon are, you know, budget restricted wise? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily agree with, with that. I, I would say that, you know, their one lap pace is pretty strong and we saw that both days um, from both drivers, to be honest. Um, you know, so they can certainly hustle the car around the track. Where, where they, they fall apart is during the race. And, um, you know, some of those errors are, are just down to maybe not having the right procedures in place, you know, to, to capture mistakes that you know just human but they need a mechanism to be caught before they become an issue you know we know that they do struggle because of the budget that you talked about um with the ability to be able to develop the systems on the car but that that's nothing to do with mistakes being made you know i mean mistakes are are, are things that even if you're not the quickest car out there you shouldn't be making errors um and and you know they, they really have to look internally at how they're dividing up the tasks between their, their various engineers um, and the mechanics on the cars or the technicians, um, who's leading the team in terms of the engineering input. So I, I think there's a lot of things that they need to, to focus on um, just procedurally more than just saying, well, we don't have enough money to develop like the others are doing. Well, if you, you know, the, I think they could have scored decent points with, with Sete, um, you know, maybe not maintain that position he was in, but I don't see why they couldn't have got a, an eighth or a ninth or something out of it rather than a, a third place. Sam? Yeah, I mean, not much more to add on, on that, apart from the fact that, you know, that once again, we saw we saw a few headlines from from qualifying which we know they they can achieve at the right track so it was it was ultimately their big chance you know this wasn't an energy sensitive race and they they had not open goals but they had really good opportunities and they generally squandered them uh, through through errors and you know i'm not i'm not blaming the team directly as roger said you know there are human errors and there are there are these there should be these safety nets for them but they just massively under-resourced and it's it's kind of heartbreaking in a way because they they all put the same amount of effort in that the other teams do um, on, on slightly you know more 
more meager um, resources, uh, certainly engineering-wise. Um, and it just shows, you know, there's no hiding place in Formula E in the races. There's just no hiding place, you know. Sete Camera, I think, in New York, started fourth, didn't he? I think he was over a minute behind the leader, De Costa, in that race. He just dropped like a stone with no discernible problems. There were problems in London, and it caught them out. In terms of the performance of Sete Camera and Giovinazzi, well, in your own words, Jack, Giovinazzi has turned up this season, and <laughs> which I thought was a little cutting when you said that, but very amusing in its own sense. But no, I mean from the driver's perspective, you know, we know we know that they're they're very accomplished drivers, and they, you know, certainly Sete Camera has proved that significantly uh, on on several occasions, and I I kind of feel for them because uh, you know Sete Camera is really struggling to get a drive next season. And I think in another environment, and I think he's a little magician. Well, you know, I think in a in an environment where he can thrive, and with the support of a good engineering team, he's got the experience of racing in Formula E now. Yes, it's going to be a new rule set and what have you. I just feel that you know the the opportunities that he has at potentially Neo. Um, we don't believe he's he's in with a shout of a potential McLaren drive if Rosenqvist stays in the States. Um, you know, Tichita, if Tichita survive, will he be on on their their radar? Or we don't believe he's, he's in the frame at Nissan. It's a surprise. And, you know, I think Dario made the point, didn't he, a couple of times on uh, on Saturday about it. It's just a big, big surprise. And, um, you know, sadly, his former experience could be squandered next season. And uh, that's, a, that's a massive shame. Yeah, no, it certainly is. He's, he's, he's certainly a lot of fun to watch. Ever since he joined Formula E in that six races in in Berlin weekend and I think he even I think he qualified in the top five in one of those races or something it was it was really quite cool from Zete Camera um finally we had some drama in the pit lane after Sunday's race I was neck deep in red wine by this point but what happened with <laughs> Pascal Verline and, and Sebastian Buemi Sam because if I did see it I don't remember it well, you know, in this, we had a sort of boxing style start, didn't we, with the concerts and the, you know, it was a bit of a, you know, it was a bit of a. Um, Did you like that? Did you like the to, concerts, or was it a bit loud for you? It was a bit. <laughs> it was a bit loud for me. <laughs> I'd have preferred a bit nice bit of Chaz and Dave or something or Dex's Midnight Runners, <laughs> but uh, that wasn't possible. So we had the uh, we had the popular beat combos of the day. So uh, there you go. But you know, this this was. This should have been billed as the featherweight contest of of Dockland, shouldn't it? <laughs> Pascal Verlein versus Sebastian Buemi. Nice bit of fun, nice bit of afters. <laughs> I mean, it all stemmed from um, they were battling for seventh position. Um, Verlein felt that Buemi was moving under braking and that it was dangerous. It was investigated. There was no penalty issued. Uh, Verline himself was investigated for a for another incident with uh, with Sete Camera whilst battling a little bit later on. It all seems to have got heated, pretty heated, from the Park Ferme area to the Weybridge with the FIA technical garage. And um, a few things were said. It ended up with um, a few little pokes and a bit of shoving. Um and um, in, in classic modern football um, stance, the sort of nose-to-nose kind of <laughs> situation, which is always quite okay. amusing for a few seconds. No one went down, though. Nobody went down, no. <laughs> the, no, no um, nobody laid a glove, glove on each other. But, you know, from a serious point, it, it, it was pretty, you know, it was pretty, um, it was ferocious for a few seconds. The, the emotions are hot. 
Um, I think, you know, we've seen it on a few occasions, haven't we, in the, in the past. That, you know, these things are usually uh, over before they've they've begun. But um, I thought it was, I thought that, that one of the great things about it was that um, Roger's own uh, Jim Wright was there as a, as, as a referee and, and peacemaker, which um, I hope that you're, you're going to pay him a little sort of bouncer bonus, uh, Roger. Are you, <laughs> you going to do that? It's the least he deserves for that kind of peacemaking. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, uh, I, I didn't know. I mean, we've always talked about Formula E being a full contact sport at times, and it appears it's <laughs> out of the car as well as in the car. Yeah, we're going full NASCAR uh, in in uh, off the circuit. Um, some newsy stuff, Sam Nissan. Who who might have, as it stands, have we got anyone at Nissan next year? And not officially, no. Um, we ran a story um, on Wednesday, which we believe we'll see Sasha Fenestras be confirmed in the coming weeks as a, as a driver, as a new signing for Nissan, um, Franco-Argentine driver who's over in Japan at the moment, driving for Condo Racing in um, in Super Formula. Um, he's got some Formula experience. He's been a reserve driver for Jaguar. He did the Marrakesh rookie test at the uh, at the end of sorry at um, the beginning of twenty twenty, and um, yeah, he's got he's got a glowing reputation. He's won races in in Super Formula. He's also doing Super GT. He's a young buck. Um, he'll be a rookie, and I think he could he could potentially be the only rookie on the grid next season. Let's see. There are a few seats up still up for grabs. But yeah, I mean, Sebastian Buemi, we've already run a story that he's on his way to Envision for next season after eight seasons with the uh, the Edams team, Renault and, and latterly Nissan. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And then the, the other seat is is still up for grabs. Um, we we think that we think that Norman Nato could be a potential favourite for for the other seat, but but Max Gunter still has um, still believed to have an option there as well. So yeah, we'll have to see uh, how all that pans out from this one. And you also ran a story about some shunts in in Gen Three testing for for Theo Porcher and and Oliver Rowland. Yeah, we we did. Um, this sort of came to light last week uh, in in both of these incidents which are which are unconnected um the the pusher pusher has been hired by spark and the fia to drive the development car the initial mule car let's say that benoit trellier was was driving at the end of last year and the beginning part of this year and um we acquired an image of a of the car in a in a yeah most um unnatural position on top of a, a sandbank at the califat circuit which uh you know to the, the the perimeter of that track is is fairly agricultural, so I think it possibly looks um, more dramatic than it was in terms of he, he gone off the track quite a, quite a substantial way. Um, and Oliver Rowland had an incident at uh, Mar- Mallory Park uh, a couple of weeks ago, so, uh, damaged his development car, Mahindra's development car, quite significantly after an issue with the, the powertrain shutting off. And, and Oliver was 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 reasonably candid about that incident which was a, a team um a team problem rather than anything spec on the car um but yeah there's a bit of an update on on how the uh, the challenges of the gen 3 development are going for a lot of the the manufacturers at the moment which you know on one hand is part and parcel of a completely new design but the other thing is that there isn't much time you know we're talking homologations in October and we're talking a hell of a challenge for the manufacturers to get on top of everything um, with these very challenging parameters and the extra power and potentially this infrastructure of, of uh, fast charging so yeah when when Seoul finishes I, I, I think you'll find 
very few people uh, partying on Sunday night. I think there'll be a lot of teams coming straight back to Europe and and uh, getting back on the Gen Three horse to get to get ready for the first the Valencia Test in December, and then of course heading to Mexico where it all starts again in January. Yeah, absolutely. Well, looking at Seoul, finally, uh, Roger, it'll be your last race with with the BMW powertrain. So, how do you how do you evaluate the last well? sort of four years with with bmw but also i mean what was it it was season two wasn't it you first had bmw people in your in your garage so the how do you evaluate your relationship with them yeah i think it you know we, we've obviously extracted an awful lot from it um we've learned a lot from bmw made a lot of friends as well um you know there's obviously been changes in in people's roles within bmw but you know, I, I was getting text messages from Jens Marquardt after the race on Saturday. Oh, so, really? You know, these people were still actively, you know, fans of Formula E. I mean, I think we'll all be a little sad when it comes to, to a conclusion. I mean, the conversations with BMW actually started at race number two in, um, in uh, Malaysia in season one. So we've been talking for a long time, as you, as you say, we had BMW staff in the garage from season two onwards and, you know, the program has grown and grown and grown and we've, you know, we've enjoyed some success together. I think be a little disappointed that we weren't able to get a championship for them, but we came mighty close last year. Um, but, you know, all good things come to an end and we've got a, you know, fascinating opportunity for us from season nine onwards with our future partner Porsche so you know as one door closes another one opens and it's the next chapter in in our history well August the all good things must come to an end including this podcast Roger thank you so much for for joining us very best of luck for Seoul really appreciated your your insight on this on this show it's been it's been fascinating um Sam and I are off to brush up on our k-pop knowledge before we fly to to (laughs) South Korea but in the in the meantime, have you got much to brush up on, Sam, or are you pretty confident with it already? I'm sticking to the I'm sticking to Dex's Midnight Runners. I'm sure his daughter's got some BTS going on in the background. Oh, really? I thought BTS was a hardware shop or something, isn't it? I have no idea about these things. Okay, well, um, I'm I'm more up for I, I'm so excited for Korean fried chicken. That's my main reason for looking forward to Seoul. But anyway, in the meantime. Uh, the script says we'll be keeping an eye out on all the content via the hyphen race.com. But uh, as we see, I often miss Sam's articles, so I need to get some kind of alert set up. But we suggest that you definitely uh, keep across all the news there. And are you going to do another podcast after Seoul, Sam? I think so. Yeah, we got our sort of okay, great. annual traditional um, review with uh, the, um, the, the, the the more professional of the commentating pair at Formula E, Mr. Dario Franchitti. Oh, he does them as well, does he? Oh yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Does he offer um, any opinion, or does he just sit on the fence? Um, he's yeah, he's, he's got a few, he's got a few spikes in his bum by the end of it. But uh, don't, don't, don't <laughs> tell him that. Uh, let's wind him up so we can, yeah, uh, we can reverse that for the next one. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, Roger, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Sam as well. We'll see you for the next. Fo- well, I apparently won't, but uh, make sure you listen to the next formulary podcast from the race. Athletic.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.